This is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess, and we're pulling up a chair and digging in in episode number 135. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, the tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi, this is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and I am thrilled to have a guest on the show today. We are going to be discussing one of the things that I am most passionate about when it comes to pregnancy and prenatal care, and that is nutrition. I'm actually really excited because I've had this guest on the show before, and she's returning to tell us about her new book and share a lot of great information that pregnant women really need to have. So I'd like to welcome Lily Nichols. She's a registered dietitian and nutritionist a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and an author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition and exercise. Her best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and an online course of the same name, presents a revolutionary nutrient-dense lower-carb diet for managing gestational diabetes. Her unique approach has not only helped tens of thousands of women to manage their gestational diabetes, mostly without the need for blood sugar-lowering medication, but has also influenced nutrition policies internationally. I also want to add that I personally recommend her book to clients, and her information is excellent. Now, Lily's second book, Real Food for Pregnancy, outlines the problems with current prenatal nutrition guidelines and provides the evidence, 930 citations and counting for you research buffs, that supports a real food diet to optimize maternal and fetal health. Lily's also the creator of the popular blog, www.pilatesnutritionist.com, which explores a variety of topics related to real food, mindful eating, and pregnancy nutrition. Welcome, Lily. I am thrilled to have you back on the podcast. Hey, Kristen. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Cool. Okay, so Lily, can you tell us why did you decide that you needed to write a new book? (laughs) Yeah, good question. You know, after I released my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, I was really blown away by the response. You know, obviously, a lot of women who have gestational diabetes and providers that work with these women uh, started using it in practice, and it it quickly became the go-to resource. Um, Within a couple months, I started getting asked, hey, it seems like all the things you're recommending for gestational diabetes, like this approach on, that emphasizes real food and low glycemic carbohydrates and a more nutrient-dense diet, these, these things seem like things that would be really good for all pregnant women. Do you have a resource that goes through these things that you'd recommend? And I started looking through the market for all the prenatal books that were out there, and I was kind of disappointed by what I saw. I either saw books that were just rehashing the same conventional guidelines that you can get from, you know, any any government website, or they were recommending something that was far different from that without any evidence to back up why the recommendations were different. And I just didn't feel comfortable with either of those. And so I started having a lot of providers just giving out real food for gestational diabetes for their clients and saying, hey, you don't have blood sugar issues, but do this anyways. <laughs> and I knew that I wanted yeah. to. I knew that I wanted to, to get a book out there on prenatal nutrition, and knowing that there was demand for it, and there was, you know, a, a sort of a gap to fill in the market, um, it certainly lit a fire under me to get it written. It was just a matter of a time, and b, I had a baby within that span, so you know, <laughs> getting my brain power back after baby to actually write it. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, it probably gave you some nice perspective for the book too. Oh, absolutely, yes, especially like the nausea, food aversions, and I have a whole <laughs> chapter on the fourth trimester, so certainly the postpartum uh, and breastfeeding stuff as well. Cool, cool. Okay, so I've actually gotten a sneak peek at a few chapters in the book, and I'm really excited to see many of the misconceptions about pregnancy diet debunked some of which are they're actually really part of our whole culture around food. And one of those is that we need a lot of carbohydrates for health. So what does the evidence say about carbs and the pregnant woman's body? Yes. You know, I think a lot of our recommendations on pregnancy nutrition are a direct reflection of what the government dietary guidelines are. 
and those are generally promoting low fat intake, replacing fattier foods with carbohydrates, especially grains. Um, and by default, these things tend to carry over with prenatal nutrition as well. What's interesting is that just like there's been a lot of research poking holes in our dietary guidelines, which like for non-pregnant people, for pregnant women, it is 45 to 65% of your calories they say should come from carbohydrates. So like half your diet, or in some cases more, they think should come from carbs. And when you start to look yeah. at the evidence on this, it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. So A, just looking, if you, we sort of reverse engineer a prenatal diet. So looking at the nutrients we know that are required for fetal development, so like vitamin B12 and iron and choline and DHA, especially some of the ones that are more difficult to obtain on a diet or more likely to be lacking, those aren't found in the high-carbohydrate foods. So if you start stacking your diet really heavily with carbohydrates, you end up almost automatically lower in some of these micronutrients unless you're really diligent <laughs> about your diet. Um, and there is yeah. research to back that up. They show that women who eat more carbohydrates, especially refined carbohydrates, their micronutrient intake across the board is lower. And this makes sense because refined grains, we're talking like white flour and white rice and you know all the processed flours that go into things like cereal and bread and pasta and whatnot, they don't have much nutrition because it's all been stripped out during processing. Uh, <laughs> yes. So that's one consideration for sure. And then I think another consideration is, you know, what are we seeing in our in our health like across the country, pregnant or not? And we're seeing a lot of blood sugar issues. So, you know, the, the latest estimate from the American Journal of the American Medical Association was that about half of people, 49 to 52% of adults, have either diabetes or prediabetes, most of whom are undiagnosed. If you look at the rates of gestational diabetes, it's upwards of 18% of pregnant women, the most common pregnancy complication by far. And so stacking the diet with yeah. carbohydrates also doesn't make sense in the context of blood sugar control because that's the main macronutrient that impacts your blood sugar. Fat and protein don't affect the blood sugar a whole lot, but carbohydrates directly raise it. It's, it's a cause and effect situation right there. So uh, I think from, from both those standpoints, it doesn't make sense. And then there's a lot of, you know, side research looking at the impact of blood sugar, even like just mildly elevated blood sugar on pregnancy outcomes uh, that are not as favorable. And looking at pregnancy complications, generally like the more carbohydrates you eat, the more at risk you are for certain pregnancy complications. So then that includes elevated blood sugar and also elevated blood pressure. So this is definitely something that I think deserves more attention and a broader discussion. And there is no evidence that pregnant women necessarily require 45 to 65% of their calories from carbohydrates. Yeah. I think we have a lot of side <laughs> evidence pointing to, hey, maybe we can make the diet more nutrient dense if we're not pushing more carbohydrates on these women because that's not providing them with these micronutrients that in actually do increase during pregnancy. You know, our needs for iron increase and B12 and choline and those things aren't found in, in grains or at least not in high amounts. So, yeah, and it's just, I guess, it, I mean, it's, to me, like thinking about it as, you know, as a mom, wanting to do everything that I can for my baby, like the thought that if I follow these, you know, this recommendation for this ratio of carbohydrate in my diet, I could be lacking in nutrients that my baby needs. I mean, that's that's enough for me to stand up and, and you know, pay attention. Exactly. And it's not that every woman needs to severely restrict carbohydrates. It's just that they shouldn't be taking the place of yeah. Foods that are more nutrient dense. So, for example, like you look at the uh, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which is like the the organization they rebranded themselves from the American Dietetic Association. But, anyways, they they guide a lot of nutrition practice, especially among dietitians across the U.S. And you look at their sample prenatal diet, and the breakfast is oatmeal, low-fat milk, and strawberries. And 
I mean, you can easily run a nutrition analysis, (laughs) which I did in my book, comparing that (laughs) their meal plan to a diet of real food and just breakfast alone having oatmeal and low-fat milk and strawberries versus eggs and vegetable and, like, pasture-raised sausage, it's an entirely different animal nutritionally. And a lot of the nutrients, these micronutrients that you need more of are better supplied by eggs and meat and vegetables. I mean, it's it's pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> it's just looking at yeah. the numbers. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, it's women just really, you know, they really need to hear this because otherwise what they're hearing is eat lots of carbs. Exactly. So you mentioned... And- yeah, you, you mentioned protein. So do pregnant women need protein? I mean, I, th- I feel like when I'm looking at, at materials, a common number that I see is, oh, pregnant women need 50 to 60 grams of protein. And is, is that enough? Yeah, great question. I actually looked at the research on this because I know I've been contacted, especially by a lot of midwives. They seem to be really wanting to be up to date on the nutrition research um, because there's mixed data. Some people say pregnant women only need 50 or 60 grams, and then other people are saying, you know, if you go higher than that, it's better. And then there's furthermore more research that says, well, maybe if you go too high, then it's harmful. And so there's just a lot of mixed opinions on what you should do when it comes to protein. It's interesting when you look at um, how the, uh, the conventional guidelines set the protein requirement, they actually looked primarily at data from non-pregnant adults. And there is actually only a single protein requirement study of pregnant women that was considered when they set this recommendation. And so in 2015, there was a really great study that was the first ever to directly estimate protein needs at different stages of pregnancy, which is, by the way, shocking, right, 2015. I mean, we're so behind on so much of this research into pregnancy nutrition. But anyways, the idea that, you know, 60 grams of protein for would be adequate for an average weight woman of like 150 pounds. This research went in stark contrast to that. <clears throat> they found that actual protein needs were 39% higher in early pregnancy and 73% higher in late pregnancy when you compare them to wow. the, the current estimated average requirements. So this actually puts wow. optimal protein intake in early pregnancy around again, for that 150-pound woman, because it is based on weight protein requirements. So for that woman, it was actually more like 80 grams in early pregnancy, so 20 grams more. And then in late pregnancy, a minimum of 100 grams a day. So certainly if you're just going by 60 grams, or sometimes you hear 70 grams in later pregnancy, it's not going to cut it. And that's just to meet the very basic requirements for protein metabolism. So I often find women do better with a little bit more than that. Um, but still, it doesn't have to go like crazy beyond. There's the research on protein intake of uh, that's too high being harmful, mostly comes from rat studies, by the way. And if you, if you work out the math on that, it ends up being something like 240 grams of protein a day for a Human yeah. pregnant woman is just like obscenely high that I never see in practice. Like at, at most, I usually see a woman maybe eat 140, 150 grams of protein, um, and yeah. oftentimes you do have to, you know, we we actually need to emphasize the protein-rich foods due to food, food aversion. So depending on the woman, um, sometimes we have to focus on more protein, not less. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I feel like what I see as a student midwife and as a childbirth educator is that women often, you know, they need encouragement to have more protein because when they get pregnant, they automatically start trying to get more vegetables because everybody knows that vegetables are good. So often I'll see women who have, like, great vegetable intake, but there's very little protein, and and you kind of have to walk them through that because there is, I think there's this misconception that pregnant women don't need it and also kind of this, well, we eat too much protein as a society on the whole, and right. kind of that that cultural perception comes through too. Absolutely. And then you start looking at which foods pregnant women are often told to avoid, and a lot of those foods are protein-rich foods. So eggs with runny yolk, yeah. the misconceptions on fish, um, deli meat, and sometimes those are the primary sources of protein that these women are getting. So you take out those foods, 
replace it with cereal, and we end up with inadequate protein intake. So it's it's tricky. Yeah, yeah. Okay, another thing that um, that I found really interesting when I was reading through your book was your take on salt, and again that you found research to back this up. Can so can you tell us more about salt in the pregnant woman? Yes, I'm so glad you brought this up. I was actually I've never been salt phobic. Uh, however, I was really surprised at the uh, rigor of research there is on the importance of salt during pregnancy and the risks of not including enough salt in your diet during pregnancy. So, and this flies in the face of current guidelines that often push women to eat low salt, and then if there's a special oh, yeah. blood pressure issue, they're like really strict on salt. So. Yeah, you know, for sure. during pregnancy, your fluid needs go up. Blood volume increases by some estimates around 40%. You have amniotic fluid. You have more fluids in your system, period. And when you have more fluids, you need more electrolytes to go along with it. If you ever go to the hospital and get IV fluids, you're not getting plain water. You're getting salt water or salt water with additional electrolytes in it. So salt is one of your yeah. most important electrolytes. It keeps your heart beating, prevents headaches and leg cramps and all sorts of annoyances. Really important for your digestive system. Helps with uh, producing enough stomach acid, which is like your main defense against food poisoning. So there's a lot of things that salt does for us. And the needs actually do go up during pregnancy. And in women where salt is too restricted, it's actually been linked to a number of actually very serious problems. I don't want to really scare people, but like fetal growth restriction or low birth weight, uh, fetal death, organ underdevelopment, and then dysfunction in like a bunch of different regulatory systems in the body, especially the ones that regulate blood pressure um, in later life in these kids. So we really want to be cognizant actually to get enough salt during pregnancy. And what's interesting is that, you know, a lot of pregnant women naturally gravitate towards salty foods. You hear about people who want, you know, more pickles or more olives or potato chips or salami. Like these are all really high salt foods. And maybe there's a reason your body is steering you in that direction. Um, And then also the research on Blood pressure is really interesting because there's, in fact, no evidence that a low-salt diet is going to prevent or help preeclampsia. And in some cases, high blood pressure is actually reversed with more salt intake in pregnancy. Wow. And I cite all this in the book because it just sounds so impossible (laughs) that it could be the case. It (laughs) does. But there's a lot of research that, like, going all the way back to the mid-1900s all the way until just up to the last year. I mean, I cite some studies from 2017 on salt. Um, So I think this definitely deserves more attention. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just, it's almost kind of mind-boggling given the way that we usually think about it and the fact that there are are potentially so many women who can be helped just by understanding this. Yes. I I was really blown away by how much research there is on this. In fact, I was like looking back to my own pregnancy thinking, man, why did I, I mean, (laughs) I I, I didn't limit salt, but I didn't think about making it a priority to get enough, right? And so I'm looking back at certain things. Oh, man, that week when I was getting headaches and I really wanted to eat a bunch of pickles. Hmm, that makes sense (laughs) now. You know, you just start connecting the dots. Yeah, it's my body was wise. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so another thing, I mean, I I know we're kind of touching on hot topics here, but I just I just love that you tackle all of this in the book. So tell us what research says about fish. I think more and more women are realizing that fish is a great choice for a healthy baby, but I would love to hear what you found. Yes, also a great question. We're tackling all of them, right? So, yep. The issue with fish is uh, a lot of women are told not to eat it or to limit their consumption to less than 12 ounces per week uh, as a means to limit mercury exposure. So some types of fish do contain mercury, and mercury is a known neurotoxin, but something that could harm brain development. So the logic follows that limiting seafood consumption would limit mercury exposure and then protect your baby's brain. 
unfortunately, when you start looking at the research on this, uh, it's just a little bit misguided because although fish does contain mercury, it also, at least most types of fish, also contain high amounts of selenium. And selenium is a mineral that binds with mercury and prevents you from absorbing the mercury. So it, it kind of passes through you. Huh, okay. Um, yeah. This is true for most types of fish. There are certain types of fish that are very low in selenium or and can be problematic. I also think it is wise just to be aware of which types of fish are super high in mercury and it probably makes sense to not eat as many of those and eat other fish that's lower in mercury. So I do agree with the general um, recommendation to not eat a bunch of swordfish, king mackerel, tilefish, and shark and to limit tuna to less than six ounces per week. But beyond that, okay. your other fish are actually going to be, A, like especially if you're prioritizing smaller fish or ones that are high in omega-3s, such as salmon, you're going to have a lower level of uh, mercury intake, but also have a high intake of uh, omega-3 fats, such as DHA. So something like, um, you know, a lot of what guides the uh, the mercury levels in fish is how large the fish is, which sounds like it's way too simplistic to be accurate, but it is, <laughs> and I cite that. So, for example, tuna, which tend to be higher in mercury, those can weigh up to 130 pounds and live for like 13 years, whereas a sockeye salmon weighs like usually less than 15 pounds and might live at maximum about seven years. So they naturally have lower levels of mercury. And you take it a step further, like to sardines, which are really, really tiny, just you know an ounce or two, uh, those have even lower levels of mercury than salmon, but still high levels of omega-3s. So you can use the size of the fish as a relative guide. Um, and then the one other thing I will mention in terms of the brain development thing is there, there have been studies that look at um, maternal fish consumption and then what happens with the children, like how is their brain development, how do they perform on cognitive tests. And there was a really good one yeah. um, of 12,000 mother-infant pairs. And they actually found that women who consumed more than 12 ounces of fish, um, those children had higher IQ and communication skills in childhood. And the worst cognitive outcomes were among children whose mothers consumed no seafood during pregnancy. And these kids were more likely to have issues with fine motor skills, social development, and communication skills. So it appears from this study and many others that even though mercury intake could be higher for women who are eating fish, the nutritional benefits seem to offset that mercury exposure. So part of that is the selenium, which binds to the mercury, and then part of that is the other nutrients that you get in fish that you might not get from other foods that are important to brain development. Yeah. Like Iron, zinc, vitamin B12, DHA, iodine. Iodine is a huge one. That's like the iodine deficiency is the leading cause of preventable intellectual disability worldwide. And that quote comes from the journal of the American Medical Association. It's like pretty important. <laughs> so these are all nutrients. Yeah. Um, many of them are supplied in most abundance in seafood. And so if you're limiting that, then yeah, you're limiting mercury exposure, but you're also limiting your intake of some of these nutrients. So it's just something that you need to carefully weigh if you decide not to consume much seafood. Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting too that you mentioned the iodine. That's one that I think about because you know a lot of the the clientele that I'm seeing they don't want to use processed salt, so they prefer you know to use something like real salt, which is not iodized. And so I always think about you know, iodized salt has been the way that they've combated iodine deficiency, but if we're not having that, how are women, you know, how are they going to get the iodine that they need? So Yes, that is an important is consideration. I mean, I also recommend sea salt because you're, you're taking in all these trace minerals in addition to the sodium and chloride that typically oh. makes up salt. Um, but in some places, that is a, a major intake of iodine. So you have to be cautious about consuming enough iodine from other places. So seafood, seaweed are going to be, you know, main, um, main ways that you can get your iodine. And secondary to seafood, your next two best sources are actually eggs and dairy. So if you have somebody who, say, doesn't like seafood, maybe they're lactose intolerant or don't want to eat dairy, 
and then for whatever reason they're not consuming many eggs, and then don't use iodized salt, then you can have a compounded issue there. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. We, um, we actually give our, so we have dairy goats, and we give them a, a kelp supplement, so they get the iodine in their diet, and then, you know, I guess it probably comes through in the milk for us. In fact, it does. Yeah, and if you disinfect the udders with a iodine solution, that also, in, in, in a way, it's like contaminating the milk, but it's also fortifying the milk. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's actually a, that's another interesting point because a lot of dairy producers have changed the way that they um, uh, sanitize the udders before milking, and so that has reduced the iodine in the diet. And even the way that bread is made, they used to add iodine to bread and instead they started brominating the flour, which actually is bad because bromine is a toxin that could take the place of iodine in the body. So bread is no longer a great yeah. source of iodine. So there's a lot of things just in the food industry side of things that have worked against us on iodine. So you mentioned seaweed and we're talking about fish. A question that I always get is, what about sushi? Yes. I'm so glad you brought this up. So a lot of pregnant women notice that they want to eat raw fish during pregnancy or they're drawn to sushi. And this was the case for me I, I was. Yeah. yeah. It's so, it comes up all the time with clients. So anyways, I, I looked into this because there's all these, foods to avoid list and usually raw fish is on there and the the advice seems prudent because during pregnancy your immune system does make some adaptations so that you uh, your immune system allows this new baby to grow without seeing it as like a foreign invader so to speak however this can also make you more susceptible to infection so you know being being smart about food safety is important however when you start looking at the research on fish there's actually a lot of countries where uh, eating raw fish is allowed or even encouraged. So in parts of Asia, like in Japan, it's encouraged. In the UK, yeah. if you go to the British NHS website, they say it's, they quote, it's usually safe to eat sushi and other dishes made from raw fish during pregnancy. Um, okay. Even the Canadian Medical Journal says that it's fine, and the rationale is that seafood that's been marketed for human consumption, especially for sushi, um, has undergone uh, microbial screening, and also um, most of it has been flash frozen. And so when, once it's been flash frozen, it inactivates the uh, parasites. So they actually suggest pregnant women don't need to eat off it, raw fish if it's obtained from a reputable establishment, it's stored properly, and it's consumed soon after purchase. And Furthermore, I looked into this a little bit. It turns out that there's some nutrients that are actually more bioavailable to you if the fish is raw, and this includes <laughs> omega-3s, iodine, and selenium, all really important okay. nutrients during pregnancy. So I think if you're smart about food safety and you're only getting it from a reputable establishment and or if you're purchasing it yourself, I would purchase frozen, almost all fish, has been um, flash frozen on the boat or in a processing plant, like right when the ship pulls into harbor. So yeah. if it's been flash frozen um, and then you you know defrost it in your refrigerator overnight, so defrosting it at a at a safe refrigerated temperature and then eat it very soon after con after you know slicing it up and preparing it, I think you're fine. And I just think you have to use your common sense, like sense like your sense of smell enhanced during pregnancy, something that often leads to nausea and food aversion. And if you get any hint yeah. that your fish might not be super fresh, your nose is going to tell you, and it's going to tell you yeah. really fast when you're pregnant. So trust <laughs> your nose. In addition to all the food safety stuff, just trust your nose. Okay, cool. Great. Great. Um, so now can diet help a woman avoid pregnancy complications? And how can what a mother eats affect issues like preeclampsia and gestational diabetes? It plays a huge role. And I completely agree with you on that whole notion that there's sort of this idea like 
your body's just going to do what it's going to do during pregnancy and there's nothing you can do, like whether you get complications or not is out of your hands. And certainly there's always some degree of chance in this. And what I like to remind women is that you can stack the deck in your favor. And you stack the deck in your favor by making proactive lifestyle choices. And the, probably the biggest one is food and nutrient related. Um, so yeah, the risk of pregnancy complications, you can look at a number of different nutrients. And I kind of cite these throughout the book because it becomes necessary in de defining what you need in pregnancy. You sometimes have to like look at what happens when you don't have enough of that and then mm -hmm. <laughs> see what happens, right? So there's a lot of, you know, women who are deficient in X, Y, and Z are at a higher risk for this complication and that complication and that complication. And you can look across the board. There's a number of B vitamins, especially vitamin B12, um, choline, iron, iodine, vitamin B6. I mean, the list can, magnesium, the list can go on and on. It would be, it, well, it fills a whole book. <laughs> so, yeah. But we could go on for hours talking about all the specific nutrients. What I like to get women back to is which foods are actually going to provide those nutrients naturally in the perfect synergy that they can avoid complications or stack the deck in their favor to hopefully avoid complications um, later on in the pregnancy. So when looking at um, preeclampsia specifically, and the looking at the high blood pressure and, and preeclampsia research is like completely overwhelming because they don't researchers don't know for sure why it happens and it seems to happen yeah. in women at different times and for different reasons. So even defining it under this blanket statement of preeclampsia is almost inaccurate because depending on when it occurs in pregnancy can point to maybe why some of it is happening. Um, so some of it can happen because like the blood vessels and the, the placenta does not develop properly very, very early on, which then later on restricts blood flow and which has a carryover effect on blood pressure and all, and the transfer of nutrients to baby and all these other things. And then sometimes it's more, you know, specifically blood pressure related happening later in pregnancy. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's more, more, you know, and more complicated uh, models for why it happens and everything in between. So I don't want to say that those are like the only two reasons. But um, when you look at it, a a big one in in maintaining normal blood flow to the baby and normal nutrient transfer is getting enough salt. And we talked about that study earlier. But there's numerous other studies that show that a low salt diet is not only ineffective but also accelerate some of the problems that you see, like dehydration and volume depletion um, in preeclampsia. Also, a yeah. diet that's restricted in salt impairs blood sugar balance as well because it plays a role in insulin signaling. So this actually has a carryover effect for gestational diabetes. And, you know, interesting. The two of these um, conditions, like, overlap in a lot of ways because blood sugar and blood pressure often tend to go hand in hand. So women who have gestational diabetes are at a higher risk for preeclampsia as well. So there's like definitely like interplay between the two, even though the clinical endpoints that we're measuring are different, there's overlap. Uh -huh. Another thing um, to think about is um, consumption of refined carbohydrates, especially fructose, because those are both of those things are related to both high blood pr pressure and high blood sugar developing. And so women who um, consume a higher carbohydrate diet are at a much higher risk for preeclampsia. There's also some research saying that you're at a higher risk for gestational diabetes with more processed carbohydrates. What happens when you eat more processed carbohydrates? They displace other foods that are more nutrient dense. So it's like a chicken or the egg situation, but nonetheless, like the more refined carbs you're eating, the worse off these outcomes are, and the worse off your nutrient intake is overall. The 
quality of fat in the diet can also play a role. Um, they found that women with preeclampsia tend to have lower levels of omega-3s in their body and higher levels of omega-6s. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about this yet, but um, well, ever, probably most women know that omega-3s tend to be beneficial. This includes the DHA for your baby's brain development. Omega-6s are a type of fat um, that tends to be pro-inflammatory. We need some in our bodies. Um, however, the majority of what we're seeing in the way that we eat nowadays, it's like people's intake of omega-6 fats are far, far, far exceeding the omega-3 fats. And this creates an issue with a, the DHA getting to the baby the way it needs to, but also these omega-6 fats are pro-inflammatory and can create some carryover effects um, elsewhere in the system. So uh, the biggest thing to do is to ditch processed vegetable oil. Um, that's going to be your major source of omega-6 fats and creates a big problem. Also, if you're not eating animal foods, just by default, even if your diet is very low in added vegetable oils, your omega-6 to omega-3 balance um, gets super, super out of whack. An even worse fat is trans fats. So trans fats are a type of fat that is, um, they take a liquid vegetable oil typically and then um, go through a process called partial hydrogenation to turn it into a solid. So they take mm -hmm. oil and turn it into shortening um, or margarine. And trans fats are extremely harmful because they're not a natural part of our diet, at least not in the form that they're made from this partial hydrogenation process. And so trans fats, even at super low intake, have been linked to lower birth weight, lower placental weight, and higher risk of preeclampsia. So that's like a huge one to avoid, like no foods that have partially hydrogenated oils in the ingredient list. Like, there's few things that I'm like, absolutely none. That one, I really strongly feel absolutely none. And you have to read the ingredient labels because they can still put zero gram trans fat or trans fat free on the product and have partially hydrogenated oils in the ingredient list as long as the total amount of trans fat is less than half a gram per serving. So you have to be a little bit more of a detective when choosing products. Yeah. You know, a lot of companies have taken them out of the food supply or taken them out of their products, but a really common place I see them is canned frosting, um, Cool Whip, um, grocery store, like regular chain grocery store baked goods and cakes and frostings and cookies. Oh my gosh, they all have trans fats. I don't know why. Yeah. Read the label on those like plastic clamshell packages you see them in there almost every time. And I think they can get away with it because they don't have to publish nutrition facts. All the companies that have like actual shelf-stable packaged products on the shelves, they have to have a nutrition facts label. And yeah, most consumers look for the trans fat thing. So um, it's huge. Um, I want to mention two more because there's so much to go into. Um, two more things I want to mention on preeclampsia's protein intake. Very important for maintaining um, normal blood pressure. And there's one specific amino acid that is really important called glycine that mm -hmm. plays a role. It's like a structural, um, well, it's an, an amino acid that's used to build um, elastin, among many other functions in the body. And elastin is a structural protein that allows your blood vessels to expand and contract. So if you don't have enough glycine, your vascular adaptation to pregnancy, which is huge because you have to handle that 40% or more change in blood yeah. volume, yeah. doesn't happen as well as it should. And thus, you do get high blood pressure and have these other carryover problems. So glycine is super important. We can talk about food sources of that in a second. And then the last one I want to mention, there are more, <laughs> is choline. <laughs> so choline is sort of a relative to uh, folate. And um, everyone knows folate for preventing neural tube defects. Choline is like folate in that it's sort of a relative to the B vitamins, but it was identified after all the B vitamins had gotten their name. So they didn't call it mm -hmm. B vitamin choline. They just called it choline. 
it is very important to placental function. It is very important to brain development. And they've shown that um, choline supplementation actually can prevent preeclampsia and reduce placental inflammation in rodent models. And some of the same um, effects have been seen in studies on human, like isolated human placental cells. So hmm. choline is really interesting because it's it's also very important to liver function. So if people don't get enough choline, you develop fatty liver. It's just like a, it, it, I think you can call this, of all things in the research where they don't want to say cause and effect, like everything is a correlation, low choline yeah. intake induces fatty liver. I think it's pretty, pretty close to calling it a, a causal mechanism. And when we think about right. the placenta, it's very much a liver. It's like a liver that you grow for your baby. It does a lot of yeah. the same functions that our adult human liver does for us. So it just theoretically makes a lot of sense that um, choline intake would help with placental function. And they've shown, um, they actually did a supplemental trial on human pregnant women, where they supplemented them with um, high amounts of choline in the second and third trimester to fully double the current dietary recommended intake. And um, mm -hmm. it was shown to both improve vascular function and they said mitigate some of the um, like preceding factors that you usually see in preeclampsia. They can't say prevents it, but it had all the things that seemed to protect against preeclampsia going on in the study. So I think it's for this reason and many, many others, especially babies' brain development, choline is absolutely essential, and we're seeing more and more and more research on it, like every every year. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really exciting. I mean, to think about something that's been a problem like throughout the ages. I mean, we see references to toxemia going back hundreds, even thousands of years, it's really exciting to think that we could be finding things that can make that much of a difference. Yeah, yeah. And it's a little complicated, too, because I've just listed off I don't know how many things, um, and there's more. I just want to stop for, you know, our, our time's sake, because I know you have other questions. Yeah. But it's a, a lot of what I point to in the book, we're talking about, like, minutia, but it points to this larger thing of, like, now what do we do with this information? How does that apply to food? And yeah. a lot of this points to which foods we need to eat more of. You know, where do we get our choline? Where do we get our glycine? Where do we get our omega-3s? <laughs> and then the foods that we shouldn't eat. Where do we get our trans fats? Where do we get foods that are yeah. <laughs> like unnaturally high in omega-6 fats or unnaturally high in carbohydrates or maybe I should say high in refined carbohydrates? And it you can piece it together, um, or more than piece it together. You can connect the dots, like pretty clearly. What what changes we should be making? Yeah. So you said you said that you would cover. So what are some foods that are going to be high in our glycine, high in our choline? I mean, I already know the answer to this, but you know, what are a few examples? Yeah. So glycine is found mostly in well, it's found in a lot of places, but it's found in its most concentrated sources in the connective tissues, skin, and bones of animal foods. So you'd consume it when you eat things like bone broth, um, slow-cooked meat like pot roasts and stews, especially if the cut of meat you're cooking has a bone, because A, there's the bone in there, but then there's all the connective tissue and ligaments that attach the mm -hmm. meat to the bone, and that stuff melts down and gets all delicious, like, you know, pulled pork status <laughs> um, as it cooks. Um, chicken with the skin, so you get it in the skin of animal foods a lot. So poultry with the skin, like don't, if you're eating like chicken wings or something, you get a lot of glycine. Um, if you're roasting like, you know, chicken breast, like get it bone in chicken breast with the skin. Or better, yeah, roast the whole bird and then throw the, the remains and bones and everything in a pot and make bone broth after it. Then you'll get, like, yeah. your glycine. Um, pork crackling, so, like, fried pork skin. Um, and then you can also get it in collagen and gelatin powder. And most of those okay. are... Um, typically, they're actually made from the hides of animals. So a lot of... This has become really popular in the paleo sphere 
like in the past year or two, which which is great because not everybody is eating nose to tail and eating like bone in company. Yeah. I think there's still a lot of people who are just sticking to like boneless, skinless chicken breast and steak and that's it. Um, so it's a great way to, to supplement if you're not um, eating as much of those other foods. For um, And collagen and gelatin, by the way, those are like one-third glycine by weight. They're going to be like super, super concentrated um, in glycine. So it's, that's a really excellent thing. You can mix it into foods pretty easily. Like I'll put a tablespoon of collagen powder in my tea in the morning and already I've, I've done my part in getting some of my glycine for the day. Um, yeah. Glycine is found in a lot of foods, but most concentrated in egg yolks and liver. So an egg yolk or an ounce of liver has like 120-ish, 115, 120-ish milligrams of choline. The current recommended amount is 450 milligrams per day during pregnancy. Um, they actually, the study that I mentioned here and then numerous other studies seem to be using this 930 milligram mark, so more than double um, the current recommended amount. So um, cola, so egg yolks and liver will be the biggest sources. You'll also find it, there's like certain plant foods that do have choline, but it's just in a much smaller quantity. And by the way, I should say other animal foods have it too. Like you'll find it in fish and ground beef and whatever. It'll just be in a much smaller quantity, and I don't have those figures right in front of me. But when it comes to plant sources, um, a half cup of cooked beans has about 30 milligrams. Cruciferous vegetables seem to have a decent amount. So like Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, about 30 milligrams in a half cup. Um, peanut butter, like 20 milligrams in two tablespoons. It, it contains some. It's just in very small amounts. You, you just yeah. run the numbers, and it's pretty tough to meet your choline needs from, um, from plant foods alone. So for... Women who are vegetarian, I definitely recommend looking at a choline supplement or for a woman who doesn't like eggs or has an allergy to eggs or something, um, most likely she's not going to meet her choline needs. Even if she eats liver, she probably won't meet her choline needs from that alone. So um, a, a supplement of choline could be a really good idea. And it's something that's usually not included in prenatal vitamins, so that would be something that you'd need to take separate. It's a very bulky nutrient. They like You'd have to take a million... I mean, prenatal vitamins want to keep you at like yeah. a few capsules a day usually. There's like a really good one on the market yeah. that I like that has eight capsules and it's like too overwhelming for a lot of women. So um, at the sake of like giving you more capsules, most supplement companies give you like teeny tiny amounts or no choline. So it's, it's something that if you're not getting it from your diet, you definitely want to consider a supplement. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, Lily. Well, I think we're we're getting pretty long here, so yeah. I'm all day. No, we need this information. But as you've mentioned, you did write an entire book on the topic. So, can you tell our listeners where they can get more information? How do they get your book and get more from you? Absolutely. So, the new book is called Real Food for Pregnancy. Uh, It'll be publishing towards the end of February, so I think by the time that this goes live, it'll be out into the world. Um, you can look that up on Amazon or go directly to the website, realfoodforpregnancy.com. I'll have a uh, free chapter up for those of you who aren't sure that you want to buy it, then you can read the free chapter and, and see if you like the direction I'm going with the book. Um, you can find out more about me from my general website, PilatesNutritionist.com, uh, and all the usual social media um, outlets, so Facebook, Twitter. I just started Instagram, so my Instagram is, like, really small and new, and I'm, like, so not one of those people who's taking amazingly gorgeous, immaculate food photos because, <laughs> like, I have a toddler running around, so it's just a matter of, like, I'm, like, just get the food on the table and eat, and if I happen to take a picture... It won't be in good lighting, but, like, you'll see what I'm eating and what I'm doing. I'm on Instagram, too, but um, I don't want you to, like, 
have expectations that I'm like this pristine blogger with all these, I don't know, <laughs> everything organized. I'm definitely not that. Um, yeah, you can find me there. And for anyone who has um, interest on the gestational diabetes side of things, that's over at realfoodforgd.com. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you, Lily. I, I know from experience that listeners appreciate real moms because every time I apologize for having a kid in the background on my podcast, I get people emailing me telling me, well, I'm the real. So I'm sure they oh, will good. appreciate your Instagram account for the same reason. Awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. Before we started, my son like just calmed down from a freak out because he didn't, <laughs> didn't want to be separated from mama for a little bit. So I feel you. Yep, yep, the trials of toddlerhood. Anyways, well, thank you, Lily, for being for being on the show again. I would, I would actually, I know there's so much that we didn't talk about. I'd love to have you back again. Um, I appreciate yeah. you and everything that you're doing to help moms and babies. It's really my passion, and I, I love, love what you're doing to support that. So thank you so much. I appreciate being on again. Thanks, Kristen. I just want to take a minute to thank Lily again for this excellent and extremely thought-provoking interview. I want to remind you that you can get her book. It actually releases the day that this podcast goes live. So if you're listening to this, you can go grab it now. Head over to Amazon.com and get Real Food for Pregnancy or check out your local booksellers. I know that you will get so much out of it and you and your baby will be so grateful. Have a great day and I will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Birth, Baby and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess. For great resources and tons more info, visit www.birthbabylife.com. Visit www.birthbabylife.com.